when I write my daily updates, I say it's day X of the coup because the coup has not succeeded. Like we're not under military rule. Amen Tent is a Burmese American journalist and gang on Myanmar who's been reporting on the coup since it began on February 1st. There's a curfew, but yesterday people were out in the streets. The military has ordered banks to open, but all the banks are closed. A says that the people are resisting, and that's making it harder for the military to take actual control of the country. It's not just a matter of who holds the gun, especially if people are saying, you can shoot us, we're not going to listen to you. And security forces are shooting. More than 70 protesters have been killed and nearly 2,000 have been detained. Amnesty International is calling it a killing spree from the military. Still, some say the coup has not succeeded just yet. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. A is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, but recently decided to quit journalism. Then, the coup happened, and old reporting instincts kicked in. A started tweeting about what was going on in Myanmar, and started a blog. I guess now I'm a journalist again. (laughs) You sound unsure, but I'm guessing that those skills never really leave you. Your blog has been so helpful for outsiders to understand what's going on. Through your blog, you have been updating day by day. Can you tell me about what's happened since the coup? So I started the blog because the day started running together for me. And it was just so difficult to remember what happened when and what exactly had happened in the first place. But I guess if I had to sum up the coup, it would be... At first, there was a situation in which the elected government was essentially taken hostage by Myanmar's military. The military has seized power in Myanmar and declared a state of emergency. The democratically elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi has been detained, along with other senior politicians from the ruling party. And then people were in shock and things were quiet for a day. And then the murmurings of a civil resistance movement began. And then that turned into the nightly pots and pans banging in Myanmar. And then that turned into street protests. Protesters are out on the streets again to continue their demonstrations against last month's military coup. Thousands of protesters across the country have taken to the streets in recent weeks. Police have broken up demonstrations in several places with tear gas and gunfire, but there's no immediate word on casualties. There was a few days of just almost a festive celebration of democracy. Even though there's obviously anger and there's obviously people are demanding that the elected government be put back in. But I think especially after COVID, people are just really excited to be outside and socialize and see people. And then after that, we've moved into this sort of prolonged couple weeks of escalating violence against protesters by the military. A young woman has died in Myanmar after she was shot by police. It's the first death among opponents of the military coup. A 19-year-old protester whose face has gone viral on social media. 
which there were these peaks of deadliness. There's a few days in which a large number of people died. The United Nations says 38 people have been killed during protests in Myanmar. Demonstrations have been met with an increasingly brutal crackdown by the police and the military. Over 50 people have been killed since protests began. And then a handful of days where one or two protesters have died, or not just protesters, but also members of government. And then days when we count them as good days because only people were only injured or they only lost a limb or something. The tactics the military and the police are using against protesters have caught the eye of Amnesty International. This week, the human rights group published an analysis saying that the Myanmar military is on a killing spree against protesters. The report says that security forces appear to be implementing planned, systematic strategies and that many of the killings documented amount to extrajudicial executions. Now we seem to be moving into the really clamping down on journalists, and there is this sort of randomized punishment of the civilian population that's happening. When you talk about that randomized punishment, some of that culminates in night raids. What Describe a night raid for me. So a night raid is essentially when people disappear. In Myanmar, the country's military has been carrying out overnight raids, arresting people and even torturing them. Security forces come in, guns blazing, usually with rubber bullets, but not always. Usually with some sort of stun grenades, as well as tear gas. And people are just taken from their homes. There's been cases where night raids are to try and find specific individuals who have publicly spoken out against the military regime, like famous celebrities, people who are influential in Myanmar society. And then there are the type of thing we saw on Monday night where they essentially demanded an entire street full of people come down from their apartments and they took what seemed like the male head of every household. And most households in that street are now missing a man. Wow. How do you know about this? Residents have been very good about making sure that everything is documented. This is in part because you need to be able to prove that someone was taken. So every weekend and even some weekdays, Thousands of people have been taken to the streets to voice their rejection of the military. And that's despite what you're describing. What is it like to be out there on those streets? You know, it's very different depending on where you are in Myanmar. So the big cities like Yango, Naypyidaw, Mandalay, that have the largest population or are just kind of internationally well-known, they get the most press. But we're also seeing in especially ethnic minority areas where there are ethnic armed organizations which have been fighting a essentially 70 year long civil war against the Myanmar military where armed soldiers from ethnic armed organizations are accompanying protesters and you see a lot less violence. But I think through all of it, you see this really beautiful kind of defiance and insistence on joy that uh, Myanmar people have. 
the first night, Yangon was really subject to this constant stream of grenades going off for a couple hours. Like after the the stun grenade would go off, you would hear people from their windows just yelling out "Happy New Year," just like mm. truly refusing to accept the fear and the terror that the military is trying to inflict upon them. So some of the people who were elected last year decided to create a parallel government. What can you tell me about that and what they're trying to accomplish? So the committee representing Bidang Zuzada is what they call themselves, and they are trying to be a, a point of leadership in the broader anti-coup movement, which has named itself the civil disobedience movement. Essentially, they're trying to ensure that the military cannot take control of the country and are essentially unable to become the government because the coup has not succeeded. You know, it's not just a matter of who is sitting in a government building and who is running the the state-owned media. And as the coup, in theory, hopefully, starts to fail, it allows a way in which Myanmar society can continue to run because a lot of things are run through the government. Like we, we can't have a situation in which no government workers go to work ever until the coup fails. Like no one will have electricity or clean drinking water. So it also gives another way in which to continue to provide basic services to people while circumventing uh, military authority. You said the coup hasn't yet succeeded. So what would it look like if it did? What does a successful coup look like, if not this? What it would look like for the coup to succeed would be for essentially the military to be able to enact power the way it had for 50 years before the beginning of democratic transition. Before 2010, Myanmar was consistently ranked as the most, the second most oppressed country in the world. And the most was North Korea, where you couldn't do anything. Like before official state censorship disappeared, you would get newspapers with words cut out of just pages. There was no freedom. So the newspapers were redacted? Yes, like physically redacted. Wow. And that's on top of the fact that people obviously began to learn to self-censor and learn to self-moderate to try and avoid going to jail. And people were just disappeared and never heard from again. So yeah, like a, a return to that kind of rule and people being governed not just because the military is putting out orders and because they have guns, but because people were too scared to do anything beyond trying to survive another day. We know the military is using tech for digital surveillance, Israeli-made surveillance drones, European iPhone cracking devices. So how are people using the internet to organize the protest, knowing that these are some of the tactics being used against them? So Facebook used to be the social media network that everyone in Myanmar was using. And so people began to use things like WhatsApp, 
Signal has become really big. People started using VPNs and just other sorts of ways to either conceal their web traffic or to encrypt uh, the sorts of things they're doing. And then there's a lot of code that's being exchanged at protests where they'll exchange sort of code words uh, and how they're going to talk about things online later on when they're no longer physically present with one another. And just the old-fashioned way, there's pamphlets, there's booklets, there's just posters being put up. And there's one more tactic that civilians who support this anti-coup movement are turning to. They're fighting the military with something that could be considered online harassment. The latest trend uh, of Myanmar netizens have been what they themselves are calling social punishment. Essentially, people are trying to use social pressure, especially shame and public harassment, to try to force either people in government to publicly side with the civil disobedience movement or people in the military to either back down or defect, especially police. At the beginning, what we saw was people would try to publicly pressure police officers to join the movement. But then people began targeting their family members, essentially. And some of the people being targeted, are they're not minors, but they're basically kids. It will be a sophomore in college in Japan. It will be the granddaughter of a general who is a, a nurse in the UK as well as people in Myanmar. We've seen sex tapes being leaked. We've seen private chats being leaked. That harassment has a name, doxing, which is when someone targets a specific person by publishing their personal information online. And doxing should be a crime. Leaking someone's sexually explicit content without their consent should be a crime. A says not everyone agrees with these tactics, but many say they're not that different from what the military does. You know, the military in the last few days have really been going after prominent leaders, lawyers, doctors. And when they don't find them in their homes, they've taken their kids, they've taken their parents and their brothers. And obviously, it's not the same scale as disappearing people in the night, but it's in the same spirit. Myanmar officially recognizes 135 ethnic groups, but that leaves out large swaths of people. And people from the smallest groups are the ones most concerned about military rule. You have written about your family. In the New York Times, not too long ago, you wrote, My paternal grandparents, who were from a vulnerable minority, hid in the home of various family members during the 1962 coup. So can you describe that vulnerable minority for us, and then what it is like to come from a family that's experienced generations of coups and military leadership. There's 135 official ethnic groups in Myanmar. There's 136 if you want to count the Rohingya. There's 137 if you want to count people who are ethnically Chinese. So this list of categorization was really born out of British colonization, and it's changed a lot over the years. So my family is ethnically Chinese. My great-grandparents came to Myanmar in the very early 1900s, and it's been 
a struggle to be Chinese in Myanmar. It's a different struggle than a lot of ethnic minorities in that we're not considered to be an ethnic group here. We're considered to be perpetual foreigners, very much in the same way a lot of Muslim minority groups here are. I have cousins who are not full Myanmar citizens. Uh, Myanmar has tiered citizenships, so they're literally second-class citizens because they're quote-unquote mixed race. specifically on living under military leadership for so many generations. Are there things that you are talking to your aunts and uncles, to your parents about as to what their experiences were to help guide your experience? I think most of the conversation that's been happening with my parents' generation is teaching us all the things that they learned about how to survive under a military dictatorship and also really coming to understand that a lot of the things that don't seem to make sense about Myanmar were all clearly in preparation for another coup. So if you walk around Yangon, you will see a very secured high city. All the windows have bars in them. There's metal gates everywhere. But if you ask people before the coup, why, why are there these gates? They'll tell you like, oh, we have to make sure we're protected from thieves. You know, really, it's a coup. It's, that's what they're worried about. And those gates have come in really handy these last few days, right? Like, you have protesters kind of facing off with the police. The police shoot some tear gas, and people just run into these uh, apartments that have uh, these metal gates on their stairwells with huge padlocks. And there's also been a lot of discussions about what the military did the last few times there were coups. This is the third coup. And what worked and what didn't, and what protesters did and what worked and what didn't. Why do you stay? You're also a U.S. national. You could leave. Why is it important to you to be there? Pretty much all the foreign journalists have stayed. I think there is a sense among the foreign national journalists here that we can report on things and we can provide cover for our local colleagues. Just the simple fact that the international community will care much more if a foreign journalist is detained in the way that they just frankly do not when it's local journalists. A lot of people are choosing to stay out of the understanding that they'll come for the locals first and someone has to be here as long as we can be. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and Dina Kispe, with Nagin Oliay, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed and edited this episode. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back on Monday.